0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations events podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
1: We've got a spectacular panel with us today. We've got TLO Heinemann, who's the primary author of this report and um, is a partner at Rhodium and is in charge of their trade and investment group. We've got Dan Rosen, who is the founding partner of Rhodium Group and is, of course, full disclosure, a director of the National Committee on US China Relations. We've got Rebecca Fennin, who is a former journalist and author and the founder of a news events group called Silicon Valley Ventures. Um, And in Shanghai, we've got Kerr Gibbs, who is the president of the Shanghai American Chamber and has had a career which has spanned both China and Silicon Valley. So we've got a spectacular panel. So let me turn it over to my partner, uh, Tilo. Tilo, take it over.
2: Thank you, uh, Steve, uh, and uh, thank you all for joining this year's official release uh, of our annual uh, two-way street report. Um, This is uh, our fifth year, um, and so the fifth report that we're issuing. And as always, um, our mission um, has been and will continue to be to provide objective data uh, and analysis on US-China capital flows for uh, policymakers, businesses, and the broader public. Um, we uh, covered two types of capital flows, uh, FDI, um, so controlling interests in uh, companies. Uh, and uh, last year, we've expanded that coverage uh, to include venture capital financing, so early startup uh, growth capital uh, for uh, technology firms. Uh, looking back at uh, those past five years, uh, it was uh, an eventful five years. Uh, we uh, had at least three major uh, disruptive shocks that have quite radically changed the two-way trajectory of, of capital flows between the US and China. And uh, I thought I'd start with that, uh, just a, a historical overview of um, how these flows have developed over the past 20 years, really. So on the slide, you see um, those uh, two types of capital flows, both directions and aggregate figure. And uh, what really... Um, brought us to this topic initially was a a really rapid acceleration of Chinese capital outflows starting right around the last global financial crisis, 2008-9. And um, right when we launched our first report in 2015-16, that two-way capital flow um, story really got boosted by uh, liberalization of policy on the Chinese side. So in 2014, uh, China, did make some moves to abandon outbound capital controls, which boosted global outbound FDI by Chinese companies. Uh, and looking at the US, we went, we went from about uh, 20, 25 billion a year to 46 billion uh, uh, of Chinese FDI in the US in 2016. At the end of the year, um, Beijing had to backpedal. Um, China retightened uh, its outbound capital controls because too much of that capital was leaving. uh, And subsequently, uh, that red bar um, here of Chinese FDI in the US dropped quite dramatically. Um, The second um, big shock um, that um, um, was impacting two-way capital flows over the last five years was uh, a more defensive US policy. In 2018, Congress enacted FIRMA, which uh, was a legislation to tighten investment reviews in the United States, uh, which applies to all foreign investors, but was clearly uh, uh, initiated by concerns around Chinese uh, investment in US technology companies uh, and other assets. Uh, And that reform gave uh, CFIUS, the oversight body in the United States, uh, much more power over investigating uh, Chinese um, investment. Moving into 2019, that uh, more assertive US policy continued, uh, and uh, US-China trade Uh, uh, relations uh, took a negative turn with the U.S. imposing tariffs, and we had multiple rounds of reciprocal tariff increases, which also weighed on sentiment. Now, at the outset of 2020, we are in that third big shock, which is the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is really changing the global economy and, of course, with it, impacting investor sentiment on both sides. So, Um, we clearly couldn't have had a better timing uh, to set up this program and help the public understand um, how much capital is flowing between those two economies and what is impacting um, these flows. Um, As always, for uh, today, um, we plan to look back at what happened in 2019. So take a look at the 2019 data, but certainly even more important this year is we're going to put a greater focus on what is going to happen in uh, 2020. So we want to spend some extra time today um, looking at um, um, how numbers have shaped up in the first quarter of the year um, and trying to make sense of uh, the new world that we live in among uh, COVID and hopefully what a post-COVID world will look like going forward. I'm going to start with a quick recap of the numbers. And um, I I will begin with uh, the traditional investment flow that we, uh, we have looked at. Um, direct investment, and um, one of the perhaps most interesting stories um, of 2019 is that U.S. American uh, foreign direct investment in China has held up surprisingly well throughout 2019, despite the trade frictions and the escalation of uh, U.S.-China tensions. Um, as you can see here, um, we uh, we have been pretty much on a flat line for U.S. FDI in China since about 20. 20- uh, 10, 2011 at about uh, 12 to 14 billion a year fluctuating around that band in 2019 we we get to about 14 billion which is slightly higher than uh, 2018 uh, um, and the most important reason for that stability is that most of uh, American FDI in China nowadays is uh, uh, consists of long term multi year uh, manufacturing uh, projects that are geared towards serving Chinese consumers and the Chinese market. Uh, One of the most prominent examples, of course, is uh, Tesla's uh, Gigafactory 3 in Shanghai, which was built, I believe, within two years, um, and uh, similar projects that are um, focused on localizing U.S. uh, operations in China to serve um, local consumers, so that made-in-China-for-China model. Looking at the um, industry composition, um, that becomes also clear uh, from that perspective. um, The number one industry... Uh, in 2019 uh, was still automotive, despite this big uh, slide in Chinese automotive sales. uh, When US companies continue to invest in uh, building out local uh, manufacturing and switching to uh, future technologies, uh, including electric vehicles. Um, Health, pharma, and biotech is another important and booming sector. So if you look at these two columns, this is the total 2019 amount. uh, And this first column is uh, comparison to 2018. And the second column here is a comparison to 2016, 2017 averages. So health, pharma, and biotech really is booming uh, with that long-term play on, a, on an aging Chinese population and a, an underdeveloped um, healthcare system. Uh, and a third interesting trend here um, to look at, um, I'm neglecting electronics because that was mostly due to a, a low base and, and one or two outsized deals. One third really important trend to highlight, though, is uh, the financial sector. We're seeing quite a bit of a a movement there. The investment values continue to be low, but American um, banks and um, brokerages are increasingly uh, utilizing the um, uh, greater freedom they have um, taken majority stakes um, in their uh, local joint ventures. So that is a trend that we're seeing in 2019, and that's especially playing out um, right now in 2020. Looking at 2020 and the outlook. um, It's a very complicated question and I'm I'm very glad we have uh, Kurt Gibbs here with us um, to to talk about it and get a get a live snapshot from on the ground. Looking at the data and the evidence that we have. uh, It's a mix of um, um, uh, Opportunity uh, and um, withdrawal. So uh, on the one hand. COVID-19 is putting additional pressure on on U.S. companies uh, operating in China. Um, Obviously, as other companies, American firms are very much impacted by uh, the lockdown, um, the slowdown in consumer demand, and overall weakening of the growth outlook. Um, And that means that a lot of firms will probably have to cut capital expenditures uh, in the Chinese market. Um, There are some situations... um, similar to 28, uh, 2008, 2009, where U.S. firms have to consolidate some of their cash at headquarters and slow down overseas expansion. Um, and there are also, of course, in certain industries, uh, very strong concerns now about over on manufacturing supply chains uh, in China. Uh, we just had the news the last couple of days that um, uh, U.S. officials are working hard to Draw semiconductor companies back into the U.S., building factories here in America. Um, we see the same in in, uh, in healthcare and related sectors, um, PPE. Um, so there's a co- there's increasing costs for supply chain diversification that are going to impact um, certain industries. Um, at the same time, um, certainly uh, China has been a, a major uh, driver of growth after the last financial crisis. And while we don't think um, that China can pull off the same kind of stimulus. Uh, uh, China being out, uh, being one of the first countries being out of the crisis, um, is making a pretty strong case uh, to um, continue investing there uh, and um, creating additional demand to uh, continue operations in 2020 um, above trend, uh, above the COVID-19 trend. Um, another important development is um, uh, Chinese um, policy. Beijing still has a few, um, um, uh, a few options to accelerate the pace of uh, FDI liberalization. Um, It has made some progress, but there are uh, vast areas of the Chinese economy that are still um, either closed off or uh, partially closed to foreign investors. So uh, China moving forward on on some of those uh, industries and opening them up uh, could um, entail additional uh, incentives for US companies uh, to invest and double down on their China operations. We look at the data points, so far, we're seeing uh, uh, mixed evidence. There are certain companies that are uh, considering to pull out or that have already announced to downscale uh, their China operations, but um, looking at our data, there's only been a really small uh, decline in newly announced um, um, greenfield projects and acquisitions in China. Um, so from about 2.8 uh, last year in the first quarter to 2.3 this year. And if you look at company surveys, and I'm sure uh, Care can, uh, can t- and tell us a bit more about that um, shortly. Um, the sentiment so far on the ground is that firms are reconsidering their investment trajectory, CAPEX, but they're not yet thinking about radically downsizing their China um, footprint. Moving over to uh, uh, flows in the other direction, uh, Chinese um, FDI uh, in the United States. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have a fairly uh, dramatic story to tell here. Uh, almost nothing um, early in the 2000s, gradual increase, big boom, all the way up to 46 billion in 2016. And since then, uh, driven by both Chinese capital controls, as well as a more assertive US policy stance, uh, Chinese FDI in the US has dropped all the way down to about 5 billion, a little more than 5 billion in 2018. And last year, we saw an additional decline to only about $4.8 billion, which is a really tiny drop in a bucket uh, for an economy as large um, as China, and one particular um, uh, particularly sad story, I think, uh, is that we're especially seeing a decline in in greenfield FDI. So, despite trade tensions, which sometimes brings about so-called tariff jumping FDI, um, so in this case, Chinese companies um, building manufacturing facilities in the U.S. We're clearly not seeing that happening. Um, um, sort of into the example of Japanese firms. Um, And so um, it's not a very um, positive story here uh, when it comes to Chinese FDI uh, in the U.S. Um, Really quick, same chart as before, looking at the uh, industry uh, trends. Um, No surprise, everything on the right-hand side is pretty much red. Uh, uh, There's a a drop of Chinese FDI across all the industries. Um, The most interesting finding is that the biggest sector now for chinese fdi in the us is the perhaps politically most uh uh the p- politically least sensitive consumer products and services with uh, 2.5 billion and uh, almost 400 percent increase compared to last year um, and uh, another um, interesting uh, development for folks in new york especially is that we're seeing a bit of a recovery uh, in the real estate and uh, commercial real estate sector Um, Although we're certainly far from the uh, level seen during 2015 and 2016. Um, For uh, 2020, the story so far is that, not surprisingly, uh, Chinese FDI into the U.S. uh, has taken another big hit in the first quarter. The Chinese economy was basically shut down, uh, and so uh, we only... Recorded about 200 million of newly announced Chinese FDI transactions into the US in the first quarter of the year, which compares to about um, 8 billion per quarter in 2016 17 and about 2 billion last year. Um, So uh, the start was very weak. uh, And um, um, looking forward, there are some opportunities, and there's always opportunity in crisis. Um, So, um, certain sectors that Chinese investors have traditionally looked at. Uh, including tourism, entertainment, food, now have very um, interesting valuations. Um, So there could be um, uh, uh, opportunistic buying uh, for uh, investors, long-term investors from China. Um, At the same time, um, a lot of the headwinds that already existed um, are uh, likely to be even stronger uh, in times of crisis. Um, Chinese policy has remained restrictive so far, and the uh, macroeconomic environment that has fostered some of these policies has arguably become even more difficult uh, now uh, post-COVID-19 outbreak. Um, On the US side, uh, the regulatory environment remains difficult. Um, As as I said before, CFIUS now has expanded power to review pretty much any uh, equity investment coming out of China and elsewhere. Um, And um, there is a big attention among regulators Uh, And policymakers uh, on uh, opportunistic buying uh, by China, especially so politically uh, 2020 is going to be extremely difficult, um, especially as the bilateral relationship has further um, soured. And so you can only imagine um, what the headlines will be if uh, any Chinese investor were to announce a major transaction uh, to acquire assets in the US. So a fairly um, muted outlook from our um, end for uh, the rest of the year here. Um, Switching over uh, to our newest edition of the data, uh, venture capital, Um, the um, story here was uh, 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 mostly one-sided for most of the past two decades. Um, US VC Indochina was always a a, a major driver of uh, the Chinese tech ecosystem started very early on in the early 2000s and has continued throughout. We're seeing big, big jumps since 2014, uh, driven by a more vibrant Chinese tech ecosystem, bigger valuations, a more mature technology market, um, all the way up to almost 20 billion of uh, American um, owned VC money uh, deployed in China. Uh, A lot of that was driven by uh, late stage rounds and and big um, Chinese tech firms. In 2019, that has come down quite dramatically to only about $5 um, in large part, for the most part, driven by a big correction in China's domestic technology markets, uh, where uh, valuations have fallen. The total number of funding rounds in the tech sector has declined dramatically. Um, So it's not so much a policy story, but uh, really a a uh, market-driven phenomenon here. Drop in 2019 has been fairly broad-based across really all um, industries. The only sector where we see resilience is um, health, pharma, and biotech, uh, where the number of fundraising rounds uh, with American participants has actually gone up in 2019. Um, And this chart here just shows you a bit of a comparison uh, in uh, U.S. uh, technology interests in 2014 15 versus 2018 and 2019 so on the left hand side you see areas that are getting more interest from US investors in 2018 19 compared to 2014 and 15 and those are mostly clustered around. um, AI machine learning big data life sciences ecology medicine uh, and then we've got a bunch of um, more exotic technologies like blockchain um, and um, and robotics in there as well. Um, Our outlook for USVC uh, uh, in China um, is uh, cautiously optimistic overall. Um, The first uh, quarter 2020 was uh, difficult. A lot of startups were um, heavily um, impacted by the crisis and deal-making pretty much uh, came came to a halt because due diligence wasn't really uh, possible to a great extent. Um, But we're seeing a bit of a bounce back um, since March. Uh, And so for the first quarter, we count about 600 million or so of uh, new US venture investment in China, which is about half of what the quarterly average was in 2019. So a substantial decline, but not as dramatic as uh, as seen elsewhere. Um, Looking forward, um, what we can gather from market participants, and um, I'm sure uh, Rebecca can talk about that um, uh, during the panel, um, we actually see uh, uh, quite a bit of optimism A lot of tech investors, um, the the smart money out there, they think that the market correction we've seen since the uh, mid-2018 has brought down valuations to a more reasonable level, and that really is creating opportunity for uh, long-term investors from the U.S. And um, while there is a lot of talk about um, trying to prevent U.S. pension funds and U.S. institutional investors to invest uh, in China, Um, So far, most of the investors um, that um, I'm talking to are uh, not very um, much impacted by by, uh, policy. Switching over uh, to uh, the other side, uh, Chinese VC investment into the U.S. was not much of a story uh, until uh, really 2013, 2014, when we saw a big increase uh, of that type of financing. And similar to the other direction, 2018 was a record year with about $4.5 billion of Chinese capital deployed uh, in the US. Um, By the way, this is um, pro-rata values, so we're only counting the the Chinese portion of a fundraising round. uh, And that's why the number is quite a bit smaller than what you would see um, elsewhere uh, from reports. Um, 2019, there's been a decline, there's been a correction, um, but um, we only got pulled back to, uh, previous 2016-2017 levels. This decline also pretty much impacted all um, sectors uh, in the VC space. Uh, And if you look at the distribution of uh, interest across technologies, a very similar picture uh, as in the other direction, but with an even heavier focus on life sciences, uh, things like oncology, Uh, and um, areas like AI, big data, autonomous vehicles are increasingly taking a backseat here. So very much uh, a focus on um, health and um, biotech emerging here in uh, Chinese uh, VC interest um, in the U.S. Looking forward, um, so far, um, the data points that we can gather for the first quarter shows that um, VC investment uh, from China um, in the U.S. is holding up better than FDI. Uh, we count about $400 million of new Chinese VC money deployed in the US in the first quarter, which is slightly down from about $640 million, um, in the same quarter last year. Uh, and so it's much more resilient than what people might think uh, in light of uh, US-China tensions and FIRMA. Looking forward, our outlook is a bit more pessimistic. And that largely comes from um, uh, policy and regulatory action. So, so far, FIRMA did give CFIUS uh, a mandate to look at startups, but we haven't really seen a whole lot of enforcement action in Washington that that CFIUS was actually asking and poking around, um, um, asking venture firms to submit their deals. That, in my view, has changed now. Um, the last one or two months, we're increasingly seeing um, um, deals being pulled into uh, into CFIUS, uh and, CFIUS stepping up their uh, enforcement actions uh, in, in the venture space so that I think is going to um, impact um, dynamics over the next couple of months uh, and certainly there's also additional risk from uh, the US government. Um, drawing up some of the missing parts of uh, Firma implementation, including uh, these uh, lists of emerging and foundational technologies that are still um, pending so. For the rest of the year, I don't think we're going to see uh, Chinese VC in the US going away, um, but we will certainly see um, uh, more headwinds for um, anything um, Chinese in the uh, US tech ecosystem. I'm going to just spend uh, one more minute uh, uh, talking about uh, our data assets. I've presented high-level findings, the report is online as of today, um, and in addition to the report, Um, You can also find um, our data sets and some really nice uh, interactive tools on our project website, uschineinvestment.org. Feel free to uh, um, look it up. You can also sign up for a a newsletter uh, on um, project-specific data and publications. One last thing that I want to end with here, because I uh, had a lot of uh, pessimistic news, Um, we are always looking to expand the um, coverage um, of um, our research um, project and um, looking at 2020 uh, seeing all these depressive uh, depressing trends uh, in, in FDI and DC one of the areas that um, we would like to uh, focus on uh, over the next um, six to 12 months is uh, taking a closer look at um, other types of what we call portfolio investments. so passive holdings of bonds and securities, there are a lot of developments in that space. Um, China just announced to basically abolish its quota system for uh, foreign investors uh, buying into Chinese bonds and stocks, the uh, QFII uh, system um, that will be uh, abolished by June 2020. And so uh, while we already saw some of these foreign uh, portfolio uh, investments edging up over the last two years, um, that could really be uh, an interesting uh, new development that will really push the level of uh, American and other foreign holdings of Chinese um, stocks and debt securities. Uh, And so looking at broader US-China capital flows, that is one area that we will expand. And uh, uh, we hope that at the next event, we can uh, talk a bit more about this uh, new trend as well. Um, I'm gonna end here and pass it uh, on to my colleague, Dan, who is gonna try to uh, make a few uh, closing comments on the broad implications of all of this for uh, US-China relations.
3: Super job. Thank you, Tilo, and thank you, Steve, um, for uh, hosting the project. Um, Kira and Rebecca, thank you very much for joining tonight, and thanks, everybody, for tuning in uh, on this topic. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say any way you look at it, this is a pretty dark picture compared to where we were a few years ago when we started um, this undertaking. Uh, it doesn't do any good to um, describe it uh, any other way. I would say the medium term is pretty much hardwired to be dark now, even if we had a very um, constructive um, state of mind in Washington, Beijing, it would still take a couple of years to get business confidence back on track. Normally, an economic downturn creates M&A buying opportunities by repricing assets, by making everything cheaper. Um, we were talking a little bit uh, before we got started, Tilo was pointing out that it looks as though uh, Amazon, I think, is likely to buy AMC theaters <clears throat> from a distressed Chinese um, seller. That would be an example of an asset that, you know, right now it's a little hard to get excited about buying movie theaters. And yet, if asset prices fall enough, it creates this cross-border and intra-nation flow of acquisition activity. And that's just how markets work under normal circumstances. That's part of the solution. But this is certainly not a normal downturn. It will be years um, for investors on all sides to reevaluate the underlying value versus the risks of opportunities, investing in their own home economies, and all the more so when you introduce the political risk of crossing a political border to invest somewhere else in the world. Um, Moreover, um, this investment picture of, um, uh, uh, of diminishing activity um, is certainly not new to the COVID era. Um, as Tilo has described, the basic trend here um, of things uh, starting to turn down a bit um, very much predates um, COVID and has been the, um, the tendency for several years now. It is a systemic shift in what was uh, a structural new um, uh, channel in the U.S.-China and China-global uh, economic relationship. While what Tilo just described into the U.S. is the steepest um, downturn of Chinese activity in an OECD economy, the same pattern of um, uh, of Chinese numbers coming down is found elsewhere in the world. For example, in the European Union, um, that speaks to the principal driver of all this that Tilo described um, Chinese concerns about balance of payments and capital outflows as being the predominant variable um, in uh, in the story um, I would say that engagement including two-way investment flows between China and the US and China and the rest of the uh, advanced uh, market democracies was never a given it was, it is today, and it will be in the future, contingent on convergent systems that we believe our economies and our companies and the way we organize our societies and and how we do business um, are getting more similar, not less similar over time. That was the foundation of this growth that we were starting to see, which was really just in its infancy and still is just in its infancy. As big as those numbers had gotten, in venture capital in 2018 and in overall uh, FDI back in 2016, that was still a fairly modest um, starting point compared to activity between uh, two fully like-minded um, economies such as Germany and France or Britain and the United States. Um, and so there was a lot more to come and there still is a lot more to come, of course. Um, Teal alluded to Rhodium Group's concerns that China's ability to stimulate its way out of the present circumstances is nothing now like it was a decade ago. And so the shoring up uh, and reduction of finance risks at home in China um, is not gonna happen quickly. It's gonna take some time. It's not gonna be a 2020 story in in our view. All things equal, that will tend to limit the potential for a sort of outward boom of Chinese opportunistic buying, either commercial in nature, uh, presumably, um, or for any other motivation as well this year. That's an important geopolitical consideration um, that we might wanna talk about um, a little bit more. If there's a constructive note for me to finish on here for our initial presentation and and hand it over to um, the two excellent um, speakers uh, behind me, um, is that the long-term, picture between the world's two largest economies still holds potential for really very massive um, uh, uh, two-way flows of investment and activity in all the channels that we're already documenting and those portfolio channels, which are still to come um, for China uh, in the future. And I would also say to close my, my brief thought here that the basics of that systemic convergence which I said a second ago is the necessary precondition for this commercial activity, the basics of that uh, convergence are still getting pretty full rhetorical endorsement both in Beijing and in Washington. There are things that are happening in Washington I can point to now which don't seem so market-oriented to me, to be frank with you, and there are certainly plenty of things going on in China the past several years and including this year which I don't think are um, compatible with the way I'd like to see my market uh, system run and regulated um, in the future. But there are some pretty interesting green shoots. Next week will be a super important test point um, to see how much um, uh, seriousness those have because the National People's Congress um, will be sitting uh, uh, after a delay. And there are some interesting um, statements that have been made by state council and leadership over the past couple months about the importance of reform and laying the groundwork for China to have a sustainable, healthy, and globally compatible recovery that can set the table for us to get back to talking about how much upside we have, rather than having to worry about just how deep the dive is, um, as we've just seen in the numbers. With that, Steve, I look forward to the conversation with our panelists.
1: Great. Well, let me, um, rather than starting to, I have only a dozen questions rather than starting on those questions immediately. Let me first turn to Rebecca for some uh, for some comments on that, on the presentation and on what's going on in the VC world.
0: Venture capital is always a cyclical market in any case, but certainly all of this cross currents have created even more cycles in the venture capital world. Uh, today, uh, we saw the peak of venture capital, China, US, just two years ago and now we're seeing the downside. And I think the outlook, and I think the outlook is important to look at as well. The outlook is that a lot of the venture capitalists are now dealing with struggling portfolio companies and spending more than half of their time just helping these these startups to survive. But on the other hand, it's a good time to invest. Innovation is, At a heightened level, we're seeing lots of new ideas and venture capitalists say that the best time to invest is in a down cycle. The best companies come out of that. Some of them have raised new funds just recently, so they're ready to go. Uh, Valuations are down slightly from what they were. And there's a lot of technology that's uh, definitely developed in the past few years in China that in some cases can rival what the U.S. has. So we look at drones, we look at uh, autonomous driving, we look at mobile apps, uh, you look at robotics, life sciences, FinTech, all of these areas are areas of interest for venture capitalists. So we're gonna see, I think, uh, another boom coming. I don't think that this is gonna be dark ages forever for U.S. to China. But I do think uh, that we will see kind of a separation of the strongest from the weakest, which we already have seen to some degree over the years that now today there's a core group of venture capitalists from the U.S. that are investing in China and that a core group that in China that have emerged, whereas before it was a much bigger pot, but it's now come down to a core group. And that core group is, is a very strong elite group. And I think that they will uh, help to fuel new investment into China. The flip side of China into the US is much more uncertain because that's much more driven by regulations of Washington DC and Beijing. So that's a little bit of what I'm seeing here from Silicon Valley. I do have to say that all of the China into the US venture capitalists has just been tremendous disruption uh, China venture funds that were heavily investing in the U.S. before. That's just gone. Uh, The capital is gone. The teams are disbanding. New funds are being created that are U.S. only oriented. So tremendous disruption, China to the U.S. But I think there's an upside U.S. to China and within China as well.
1: Fascinating. Kerr, the view from Shanghai and your, your members. Yeah, Steve, thank you very much. And um, yeah, it's my pleasure to uh, to be here today and
4: glad to add a little bit of color to what uh, what you, Steve, and Tilo, and Dan have been um, saying about the market um, and add some color from uh, thoughts on the ground here in China. Um, first, it's it's great to be collaborating with with, um, with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and also Rhodium. Uh, both organizations do excellent work. Uh, we've cooperated with Rhodium before. Uh, to support their work, and it's important. Um, we look at the Rhodium Group's data because um, they have a much more, <clears throat> excuse me, comprehensive view of of the of the data uh, on investment flows. Here at the American Chamber, we also look at uh, the data um, on investments, but we look at it from just a very, very specific slice. In other words, the American Chamber uh, here in China. Um, I'm based in Shanghai, and uh, we just look at our members and what our members are saying about investment, and that's only one slice of, of the investment pie. And Tilo mentioned uh, passive investments, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But uh, we have about 3,000 members here on the ground in, um, in Shanghai, and so we just look at, at, at that. And the, the primary focus for that group is uh, the so-called in, in China for China. They're investing in plant and equipment. Um, and teams here in China to support the, the market, to produce goods and services for the China market. So that's just a very specific look at the, at the data. Um, it was alluded to before, I wanna go back to the, the data that Rhodium Group and, and Steve, you alluded to it as well, or actually, sorry, Dan, I think alluded to as well, as your data looked at about 2010, sort of, sort of flatline. That's, that's roughly consistent with our data. We looked at it, uh, we sort of see the inflection point in about 2012. Where we saw, um, you know, a, a decline in in, in investment uh, U.S. companies investing in China, and I bring that up because I think looking at 20, 2019 and twenty twenty data, you have to look at it within that context. And I don't think there is anything particularly sinister about that decline, and sort of you know no longer you know have lost the loving feeling for the China market or anything like that. I think it's our interpretation of that data is that it's mostly a reflection of maturity of the market. Um, you know, when, when, when there's not much plant and equipment in the market to begin with, and everything has to be built from scratch. And at this point, the China market is, you know, it's fairly mature, frankly. And so the, the level of investment isn't, um, isn't what it was in, say, the, the 90s and early 2000s. Having said that, in 2019, our data did show a fairly dramatic drop. Um, so we, we collect that data slightly differently from the way the rhodium group does. We, we ask our members are you planning to increase the level of investment this year over last year, which is just a slightly different way of asking the same question. Um, And we actually saw about a 20 point drop in that that number in 2019, which was fairly dramatic and that, um, that coupled with another question that we asked, which is sort of the overall optimism level. And that dropped as well by about, about well, over 20 points. Um, and that's largely you know, trade trade war related. I mean, that's clearly a, a sentiment in the market um, that uh, it's a reaction to that. And there I wanna jump in, actually one of the questions that was submitted, I may as well attack that. Um, there was a question that was submitted, um, or I guess we were discussing this earlier on the call, is Chinese policy generally, right? The question was, you know, is Beijing trying harder to roll out the red carpet to foreign or u.s invest investors and um and what would be the game changer there i would actually say yes the role the red carpet is being rolled out but not by beijing and and that has to do um i think that connects also with the overall sentiment of business over here in china um, there's a lot of frustration with the discourse that's happening between Beijing and Washington, DC. And that's that's very frustrating. And uh, Steve, I think your introduction to the report alluded to that as well. When when COVID happened, um, and the, the society in general was looking at it and say, wow, we have a especially when it hit the United States and hit Europe, the overall sentiment was, wow, we have a common enemy. This is definitely something we need to cooperate and 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 attack together, and we need to be sharing data. We need to be uh, cooperating in every way possible. And there's a lot of disappointment that that has not taken place, that the opposite of that is, is what seems to be happening between Washington DC and, and Beijing. In contrast, the sentiment here on the ground at the subnational level is I would say absolutely yes, the, the red carpet is being rolled out. Uh, China at the working level absolutely still wants US investment in this market. They welcome it. Uh, they're very business oriented. I just got back. It was last week. I was in Suzhou meeting with some of my counterparts out there. They're very eager to, uh, to, to, to welcome uh, further US investment. Um, and I think that that will come. I mean, some of the, um, I guess, two thoughts. Um, one is, is to, what are the, some of the things that Tila was mentioning? Um, yes, there's you know sort of a weakening of the of the growth outlook, and that happened right through through 2019. So we had had that, but um, I would say the sentiment here is fairly optimistic that China will be early um, early out of this crisis and um, probably will have a, a better experience in the recovery. Now, again, it's pretty early in the process to make you know, sort of GDP predictions or things like that or what shape that curve is going to look like. Will it be a sharp V? I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know it's going to be a sharp V or, a, or versus a, a, a long U. But, um, but the way China has managed things like this in the past um, does give us uh, some reason for optimism. Um, I'll make a quick comment about something else that came up. Um, I think it was Dan that was talking about, yeah, we're not going to see huge stimulus measures from China, just given their situation with respect to their existing debt levels. And I think they are going to be fairly conservative. Having said that, they have been very aggressive in terms of the rescue packages, I guess you could say. And they're focusing on exactly the right areas, which is the SMEs. So the, um, looking at the two key cost drivers for SMEs and that's payroll and rent. So they've taken some aggressive measures there to give relief to, to SMEs. Having said that, um, that is the sector clearly that's gonna be going to be impacted. And again, Tilo re- referred to downsizing or pulling out of US companies here in China. Um, are we seeing that? Um, at the SME level, yes. We are seeing that. We've already started to see some bankruptcies. Um, My guess is that that's going to accelerate. And we're talking about sort of companies that are sort of 50 to 80 employees and below. They're struggling to make payroll. They just don't have the cash reserves to sustain this kind of thing. Um, At the larger company level, no. um, We're not seeing really any shift in, um, in commitment to the market. Um, so that's very strong. And I think that that's, that we will continue to invest going into the future, um, really on the back of the consumer story, um, healthcare, and financial services. I would say those are the three sectors to watch. Um, so I probably have further comments about supply chain um, and things like that, but maybe we can leave it there and, and open up to, to questions or however you want to move this.
1: I see we already have a dozen questions that have been sent in and then some which were sent in in advance. The first question, Tilo, kind of jumps out, the reduction in Chinese investment to the US, how does that compare with the reduction of Chinese investment to the EU, the UK, Japan, South Korea?
2: Um, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, And uh, the um, short answer is, um, Chinese up on investment uh, has been declining globally. Um, So um, if you look at Chinese outbound investment, there's different data points, different measures we can use, but um, um, largely speaking, we're back to about 2014 levels in terms of total Chinese outbound investment um, globally. Um, Some regions, countries have held up better than others, um, and the US is certainly on the lower end of that spectrum. Um, So the European Union uh, in the last two years have received about twice the investment from China uh, than the US. So there is this bit that can be probably explained by more restrictive uh, US regulations and US-China tensions. Um, but again, my my, my my basic stance is 80% of that decline is related to Chinese Obama policies, 20 or 30% is related to uh, host economy policies and market dynamics.
1: The um... US venture capitalists have participated in some of the spectacular deals in China. Have you made any attempt, I guess it'd be for Rebecca or Tilo, have you made any attempt to kind of, you're calculating it based on cost basis, which for FDI may be sensible, but when you're doing 100 times or 50 times, you're going in, in a VC deal, what would that number look like if we were marking to market in 2020?
2: Well, um, I think Steve, they're, they're certainly correct that, that a lot of these uh, U.S. funds have have made a, a killing uh, in China um, during uh, the golden era, but um, it's it's hard to really calculate the returns because a lot of that data is is, uh, is private. Um, uh, but I would perhaps say um, that this golden era is is over, uh, right? So there was there was this. Uh, Period the past seven eight years uh, before before 2018 where um, where these deals were possible um, competition has grown and and, uh, and uh, these outsized returns I think are more difficult to achieve now um, and I would also say um, it's maybe uh, uh, a little um, too narrow to to just look at this from a, from an, from a VC uh, lens right if you uh, consider FDI for example. Um, a lot of American companies have certainly uh, made very outsized returns as well, uh, just purely by being being in the market for, uh, I guess, Kira uh, referred to it as planned equipment, real estate. So if you would mark uh, mark these assets to market nowadays that were put into the Chinese market 20, 30 years ago, um, you'll probably get, uh, get even better returns than uh, uh, in some of these uh, VC plays.
1: Interesting. Uh, Kurt, you, the the in china for china do you have data on what percentage of your of the of the investment of your members are done in china for sales within china and how much of it for export export back to the united states or export elsewhere and do you have any uh, is there and this would be for everybody is there data on how much us companies repatriate out of china In profits, Kerr, you're you're muted. You're muted. Yeah, thanks. Are we unmuted now? So, Steve, I
4: just wanted to um, address um, what uh, the the previous question, real quickly. Um, Yeah, I mean, because I I was an investment banker in a previous life, and and was in that world. And um, yeah, people. I think the answer is they made a killing, but. Uh, and there are opportunities uh, going forward, but the, there's been a big shift from U.S. dollar VC funds, and now it's while well, most of the VC investing here in China is actually done in RMB, so so locally raised funds, whether it's still you know, Shen and his group, but raising RMB funds as opposed to U.S. dollars, and and that that has to do with with kind of uh, two things. I mean, one, it gives them more options in terms of listing um, and getting that liquidity event. Um, but it also um, also is impacted by this so-called decoupling uh, conversation, and especially around the technology space. So again, it, doing investments in, in RMB gives more flexibility. Um, in terms of the question we answered about the investment percentages, the in China for China, um, we don't track the investments that way. Maybe maybe TILO does, but um, but uh, we don't look at uh, passive investments. And that's something that TILO brought up, actually. And I, we do see that as a big opportunity here, meaning... Um, so if the VC opportunity in U.S. dollar funds maybe has, has decreased, what has increased is the opportunity for asset managers in making passive investments in the market, maybe mainly in public equities. And so that market has been liberalized, um, and uh, we see big opportunities there for asset managers. Quite a few of them have come into the market in recent years, and we expect that trend to continue Um, The other trends as far as the sort of so-called in in China for China model, um, you know, the big shifts that we've seen within the American chamber is also a dramatic shift from manufacturing over to services. So the majority of our companies now are are much more in services as opposed to manufacturing, and that trend will probably accelerate. So again, I think what's happened with both the trade war and COVID is these Things have accelerated trends that were already there. So the uh, I think a lot of attention has been paid to the supply chain equation moving out of China, especially at the low end. The trade war accelerated that. Uh, COVID will probably uh, broaden that trend um, as as companies look to diversify their supply chains. And uh, that conversation is definitely happening. Again, you. don't see a dramatic shift, everybody sort of pulling out of China. You're not seeing that, but you are seeing much more serious conversations at the board level in terms of um, looking at China in much more in terms of risk adjusted opportunities um, and also uh, risks. I mean, now that it's clear to everybody that global supply chains actually can be shut down by a virus, this is a new element
1: um, in that equation. But if you're in China for China, that's it's somewhat that calculation, whatever. It, it, exactly. It does give you, you know, when, uh, when your production is
4: in the same place as the demand in terms of where you are in the recovery cycle, you're in a much more advantageous position um, as opposed to having your business scattered from, from, from all parts of the earth that may be in a different part of the cycle in terms of recovery. That makes a much more difficult business to manage. So long-term trends going forward, um, again, I'm not seeing a huge shift out of China, but I am seeing a shift towards thinking about businesses um, in, in more of an autonomous unit as opposed to, and, and looking carefully at these dependencies that cross borders and cross regions that may be impacted differently uh, by things like a virus.
1: Tilo and Dan, anything you guys wanted to add on that? Or I'll go to a, my next question.
3: Um, The only other element that we didn't already touch is profit repatriation. This has been a sticking point um, with, um, I would say, antiquated regulatory impediments on the Chinese side to firms repatriating their uh, hard-earned profits. Um, One of uh, of the other elements that came along with the um, uh, most recent opening to QFII investors is some assurance that their profits will not be held up um, by uh, by bureaucratic drag at the border. Um, but if they go in and succeed in the tough market of China, they'll be able to do what they want with their with their earnings. Um, it's been important for Beijing to underscore that because even in the high-tech Chinese companies, there's been a lot of state intervention in the past couple of years. And so folks both on the real side and the investor side are quite concerned to, to see some assurance um, that the market's going to be permitted to, Operate, you know, freely and normally uh, in the future. I would say so. I would just add that on the on the profit repatriation point. And, and Steve, I, I have
2: one one addition to uh, to Keir's point about this uh, uh, tendency towards, uh, I, I guess, sort of a new new dimension of localization or or sort of localization of operations. Um, I think U.S. companies will have a much uh, um, um, will have it much easier to deal with that than, than Chinese companies. So if you look at two-way flows, uh, we're seeing very few examples so far of Chinese companies following that approach into the U.S. market. Um, and so when we look at that two-way um, balance, I think uh, U.S. multinationals being in that position for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, um, um, will, um, will, will be um, um, better able to deal with that challenge than their Chinese counterparts.
1: The, um, Dan, I, I loved your kind of contingent on convergence systems. Um, can you explain that? I think, you know, I, is
3: that because of I, You have to explain to
1: me what what that meant.
3: Oh, well, that would be a very long discussion. We should get a good bottle of wine, Steve, as soon as that. In, in, in short. But in short, I mean, there's, there's something we do, you know, over at, at Asia Society called China Dashboard, which looks at Chinese policy making in 10 different basic domains, things which uh, are not generally understood ideologically, um, but simply in terms of market efficiency to do with fiscal policy, comp- basic competition policy uh, regimes, um, trade policy openness, um, and cross-border investment is one of them. And in all of those areas, Uh, early in the Xi Jinping years, uh, the leadership set out the task of taking the next set of steps uh, in the long-term reform and opening uh, adventure that um, China had set out on um, four decades ago. And in almost all of those areas of what was called the 60 decisions back at the third plenum of of 2013, uh, there's been uh, very, very mixed progress um, toward the goal of, um, uh, pers- of continuing the process of kind of marketization. Most recently, some very large and sort of abstract announcements about um, I- installing new market allocation systems for capital, labor, and data, which nobody else in the world treats data as something that needs a government regime to allocate it to, the, to, to companies. It's, it was generally seen the opposite as kind of born free. Um, but, um, but the basic disposition of the state toward the market in China is, is something that is in flux. Um, it is not today exactly what it was five years ago. Even the role of party committees in corporate governance has changed quite a bit um, from where it was expected to head um, five or so, or, or even three or four years ago. Um, and there's tremendous debate and discussion about whether to interpret these things as just cyclical blips um, you know, two steps forward, one step back, or whether we have a more structural um, drift back in a state-oriented direction taking place um, in China. I will observe that this sort of affinity for state solutions to market problems is not uniquely a Chinese phenomenon. Um, there are others in the world who are also, not even just in the COVID context, where of course the state is always expected to step forward in a situation like this, um, but even pre-COVID, Um, Some government authorities have been thinking, well, maybe we can do better if we plan with industrial policy like China does, rather than leave it for firms to to fight it out in the marketplace. So a lot of very philosophic debates um, taking place in the sort of think tank uh, lane, I would say. And uh, we should do an event soon to talk about some of those things. Should. Let me take some questions from...
1: Our audience, I see we've got lots and lots of them. Uh, This is from our uh, USC member, Clayton Doob, who who asks, and presumably the the decline in investment in North America and Europe hasn't been mirrored in increased Chinese private investment in BRI projects. Are US companies in China, e.g., Caterpillar, GE, Trimble, et cetera, still hopeful of getting contracts related to BRI projects? Tilo, can
3: I take the first crack at that? Just because it's such a fun question, let me do that. So I would, I would simply point out to that one, and Clay, great, great to be on the line with you, um, that the kinds of investment opportunities in Botswana or Kazakhstan or even Chile or Brazil are not comparable to the kinds of investment opportunities in an advanced economy such as uh, Germany or the United States, right? And so you can't simply say, I'm not gonna invest um, in Mountain View, California. I'm gonna go do it in Turkey instead. Um, those opportunities, both Greenfield and m and simply do not exist in the BRI world to substitute for the opportunities and motives for Chinese companies to want to be and uh, the most advanced economies, the United States um, and Western uh, Europe. Um, BRI, as a separate theme, not connected to our FDI topic, is definitely very interesting, and it's very important potentially um, to, uh, to to many American firms like uh, like Caterpillar, like CAT, as you uh, just mentioned. Um, but I would say it's not connected to the ups and downs of the FDI story as we've been as as we've been tracking them here in this series. Her?
4: Sure. Um, I'll take a crack at it. I mean, BRI. It's it's interesting. I mean, it's in some sense it's a, it's it's an area where the U.S. and China are in violent agreements. In the sense that um, China doesn't doesn't necessarily. I mean, they make make they give lip service to 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 including U.S. companies in some of the BRI projects, but we have yet to see uh, real meaningful participation in that. Um, I think it's going to be kind of an interesting uh, view to s- going forward to see um, how how much enthusiasm you know BRI re- continues to re- to to receive now sort of post COVID. Um, uh, there's been a lot of uh, back and forth in terms of you know China's position um, or, or the receptivity of of, of BRI uh, infrastructure investments from from China. So it's been a it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. Um, so hard to, hard to, to see the long term trends, but um, at this point, it's probably going to be a changing landscape for, for the next uh,
1: year or so. Uh, that'd be my take on it. Kim, Kimberly Mullen asks, Hi, Kim. Would you please speak more to the potential impact of Made in China 2025, 2035 on investment focus U.S. to China and China to U.S., particularly within technology?
4: Well, I'll take a crack at it, Steve. I mean, yeah, I mean, 2025, um, yeah, that is the 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 issue you know in terms of um you know looking at the u.s business community the 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 ones that are here in china are the ones that have found uh sectors that are open to them from a market point of view and an investment point of view and no equity caps and things like that Um, the the 2025 model you know lays out the the strategic industries of the future and that that those are the ones that are more controversial and um, so it, it is tough. I mean, I think, I think what most of the American companies do when they're based here in China is they look for sectors where they have a lot of running room and, and tend to invest in those sectors. So consumer is, 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 is wide open, healthcare wide open, um, tech, not so much. And that's why the the Tesla investment was such a big deal. Is is looking at um, China allowing a wholly owned, uh, wholly owned business, not just in automotive, but in electrical vehicle. So that was a key move on on behalf of China, and I think a smart one, uh, to show that there is room, at least in that part of the 2025 plan, which includes electric vehicles. So um, so everybody wants Tesla to succeed. Um, Tesla obviously does, but China does as well. They want to they want to show that an American company uh, can be successful in a in a tech field and and within electrical vehicles. Having said that, um, China also very much needed Tesla. I mean, the electrical vehicle uh, market over here has been a mess. Um, you know, almost two hundred different companies, all you know, doing different things in EV uh, at various levels of success. Um, the the spectacular struggles of NEO, which would be kind of maybe the closest equivalent to a to a Tesla vehicle. Uh, so so in order to bring maturity to to the market, it was a it was a positive thing to bring to bring Tesla in.
0: Yeah, I was gonna comment on the electric vehicle industry as well, and certainly Tesla is a, an excellent example. But the China to the U.S. side, we're seeing a lot of R&D for the autonomous driving, China into the U.S., China, R&D for autonomous vehicles and electric cars together in Silicon Valley and in Los Angeles. Uh, You're seeing many, many of these Chinese companies doing heavy R&D with engineering teams here in Silicon Valley and also Los Angeles, kind of a new Detroit of uh, the U.S., of the world, maybe. The Chinese electric vehicles, um, I mean, you're right to say, uh, definitely some of them seem strong in the beginning, like Neo, but uh, others, uh, we've certainly seen a separation of the stronger ones.
3: Steve, let me add one thought that um, picks up from that question and addresses another one I saw in the, in the Q&A chat concerning what industries in China are the most important priorities for us to see opened next, to, you know, wider to foreign investment. And I think part of that larger issue, that, that collision between American interests and Chinese interests that is the elephant in, in the room here, um, is that the era in which industrial policy can favor some promising industries in China and FDI policy is gonna open a few next, but not just move ahead to general to general reciprocal openness to all foreign investment without any of this kind of special tinkering about the regime, that that era is over, I think. And China's global competitiveness, its ability to be world-beating in so many industries, um, if not already in the leading place, as the um, panelists have noted, um, on the cusp of it, means that it's time for us to fast forward um, to a time when we don't have to worry about whether china twenty twenty five or the new Tri- china thirty five um, initiative that I heard about the other day, uh, or the next FDI opening uh, announcement pick some in- industries that the President of the United States has to be concerned about, but not others. And so it's putting uh, market economies in an, in an impossible position where their leaders have to make these kinds of political compromises around basic economic uh, access um, to a market, which already generally has had unlimited access, right, back in our economies over the past um, several decades. Um, Now we are starting, unfortunately, as we discussed before, to consider implementing some industrial policies, some greater restrictiveness on our side in the OECD, um, which to me seems more like a detour in the wrong direction than the right long-term fix for our competitiveness. But um, but that is the reality of the moment. Andrea shell asked, will
1: a change of presidents make a difference? Will the trade deal fall apart or be renegotiated? What do you think the effect of this will be on uh, two-way
3: investment? Any volunteers? This will, be, this will be fun to see who steps up first if I don't, because I always rush in <laughs> on these, these dangerous questions, but I want to see whether uh, Rebecca or Kirwan want to yeah. take a swing.
0: Yeah, well, maybe we'll have a president who won't call it the Chinese virus.
3: I'll add to that, that um, the phase one deal, the U.S.-China Economic and Trade Agreement signed on January 15th, doesn't really have most of the necessary attributes of a meaningful U.S.-China economic deal, in my opinion. It's a managed trade arrangement that was designed to deliver very specific values of benefit to one side in a manner that was totally um, uh, out of line with America's multilateral commitments, and for that matter, China's multilateral commitments under the WTO and other agreements. And so um, uh, I I should hope that the next um, American uh, leader uh, takes our um, strategic regimes put in place with China back in the direction of compatibility with the rest of the world And also in a direction of um, approaches that are going to be sustainable and resilient over time and not dependent on us not having a a recession, which we're having now that make it essentially impossible to implement that deal anyway. So that's what I think. Anybody else want to jump into
1: that one? I guess I'll add a little bit to that, Steve. Um,
4: You know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of people are saying, you know, the one thing everybody's agreed on is, you know, between the Rs and the Ds, is that you know they all hate China and they're all sort of unified on China. I, I would pick a fight with that particular narrative. Um, I uh, the way I see it, the, the the Dems and 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 Republicans are 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 both unified around the what. I don't think that they're necessarily unified around the how, and that's probably. Um, one of the discussions that's going to play out between now and November, and and beyond November, depending on who, who wins. In other words, um, the, uh, there's general agreement that the current course and speed is unsustainable between the U.S. and China. I think that's clear. Um, what's not clear is how we get to a better agreement. And to to Dan's point, I would very much agree with that. The the phase one is really just a ceasefire and. Um, the things the elements that were in there other than the ag purchases a lot of those kinds of things the ip ip agreements and currency i mean these are things that were largely agreed to or at least directionally they were headed towards agreement anyway um it's 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 a little bit surprising to, to 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 see why it took 18 months and uh and a very damaging trade war in order to get to those particular outcomes um, now, the ag purchases is a little bit different. I, I agree that's, you know, managed trade. And again, that, that, that should have been, um, you know, a reasonable negotiation. I don't know why it would have, would have taken the, the tariffs. So, but back to the point of how, what will look different on the Democrats, I think, well, um, two things. I think the tone may be, may be different. It'll be a different negotiating style for sure. And I think it's an open question as to as to whether um, a more cooperative stance will will get better outcomes out of out of China. But the second thing for sure is um, there's been a philosophical discussion about a philosophical decision on the part of the White House that they're going to do this negotiation alone. This will be a bilateral agreement. The president likes bilateral. We've had that conversation with the White House. We've had that conversation um, on the Hill. And there's just agreement that this administration does things bilaterally. It's a waste of breath to try to convince them otherwise. Democrats, they just have a different different approach with respect to that technique. So again, I would say it's not necessarily a difference in,
1: in the what, but it is a big difference in the how. Even though the business community understands, I'm sure your members would prefer this be done multilaterally, and that the business not be shifted away from American companies to others if we're the ones who are in the doghouse for that particular. Product.
4: Exactly, we've been we've been broadly supportive of, of the administration's approach to take a tougher or more deliberate approach to China, uh, to get better outcomes, to get this relationship moving in a different direction. We've been supportive of that. What we haven't been supportive of is is the tone, uh, the aggressive tone, and the, the certainly the tariffs. That have been extremely disruptive. Uh, so yeah, we've 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 communicated that to the White House. Uh, here we are.
1: <laughs> I could ask about last week's regulations, but well, that's a whole different since that governs U.S. exports, not investment, and it was not coordinated multilaterally. We did a program on that last week. Um, Helen Lee asks, can you comment on the outlook for Chinese companies? looking to list in the, in the U.S. capital market with some recent controversies. And then a little later, someone else asks, let me see, oh, Chris Merck, is the Lupton scandal indicative of a broader problem with more examples likely to come, or is it a one-off incident with limited significance for investment trends? Tilo, well,
0: you wanna, uh, yeah the luck and coffee the Luckin' coffee example it has certainly gotten a lot of press and you know I have heard of some other companies that have been accused of inflating figures but I don't think it's you know a necessarily a broad problem. Uh, I think it's more you know a, a maybe a couple. Uh, we did see just uh, on Friday, a successful listing of a Chinese company in the US on NASDAQ is the first one uh, since this whole coronavirus craziness began, and it did well. So maybe there is um, a more positive outlook for Chinese IPOs in the US. Although on the other side, I mean, we had been hearing that there may be a stop to uh, Chinese listings, but that was mainly because of political reasons, I think.
3: Um, there I'll are a lot simmering yeah. uh, mm. SEC issues to do with accounting um, standards as they are uh, imposed on China domiciled firms and whether those that trade in the U.S. have the same amount of uh, transparency into their financials. That are required of firms listing uh, in the U.S. Um, from any other country. Um, this is something which I think if there were goodwill uh, in the two capitals would be resolvable but in the current context um, seems to be getting worse not better in terms of the worse meaning the higher likelihood of more challenges um, for firms trying to uh, have cross-border um, capital market utilization it seems to me. I don't know, Tilo, if you have any other thoughts on, on that one. We've talked about it a lot offline.
2: Yeah, I, look, look. It's, it's not a new problem, right? There, have, there have, has been a, a series of, uh, of similar incidents uh, uh, about a decade ago, SinoForest and, and all these companies, so it's certainly not a new problem. Um, it's a very prominent one, and um, there were a lot of uh, prominent advisors involved, so it's certainly taken it to the next level. We may see some some legislative action in the U.S. Um, I think that's one of the few proposals that actually stands a chance of uh, of, of getting getting somewhere. Um, but you know, in the long run, the question is what are the alternatives for Chinese tech companies uh, uh, to to uh, uh, to go IPO? Uh, there's Hong Kong, and then there's the domestic market. Uh, and and so I think looking at the question from this angle is probably the most useful. And and for my for my part, unless there is a more aggressive um, action um, in the in the U.S. that is uh, uh, really going full blown into a financial uh, warfare, uh, delisting and preventing any kind of company from listing in the U.S., um, I do not see this uh, going away um, anytime soon.
4: Yeah, I'll just add a quick comment, Steve, um, to what Tilo and, and Rebecca had said about that. I mean. Um, yeah i agree i mean there's definitely demand for it i mean u.s is still you know the best capital market in the world to get liquidity for these for these um these these businesses but i guess i would point to it as a as a bright spot in the relationship in other words i i'm I'm the eternal optimist i'd look at the the positive aspect i mean it's it's definitely something um, that chinese companies have benefited from in the sense of of listing in the us or at least attempting to list in the us imposes a certain level of compliance and transparency and and um and uh, uh, alluded to the to the accounting issues there but that's been a net benefit to china in terms of bringing those kinds of standards to the market and before that was happening um it was a mess over here i mean looking at balance sheets and income statements it was just a complete mess and now it's much much better and so again, you know, we're still waiting for the thank you letters. You know, to all the different benefits that China has has gotten from from the integration with the U.S. economy. I would say that this is one of them. Um, I'm just kidding. We're not we're not literally waiting for a thank you note, but it is it is um, an example of of a um, a positive aspect of of how this relationship has worked and should work and and could continue to work in the in in the future. We're all hopeful that. Um, that we can get these um, current issues resolved and get back to a much more cooperative footing, and to to to, to the point, I mean, yes, Sina Forest is sort of where it all sort of that was the first big you know spectacular short selling uh, opportunity in the market, but uh, we've seen fewer fewer. I mean, Luckin was was a bit of an outlier. I don't think we're seeing um, quite the. Uh, Quite the number of, of, of short selling opportunities or you know outright outright frauds, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing for everybody. It's a good thing for China uh, benefits their reputation in the in the, in the long term. Yeah.
1: The um, Chris Mark again, Asus, I guess this is for TILO. Is U.S. FDI in China primarily new money, or is it from retained earnings of China-based subsidiaries? And is there a trend in this? area.
2: I would say it's it's really a, a mix of both. Um, it is increasingly, if you look at the last twenty years, of course, uh, it has shifted from uh, uh, from new money uh, to retained earnings, uh, and increasingly also local fundraising. Right. So we must not forget a lot of the big projects, like like Tesla's Gigafactory, was. Financed by local Chinese bank lending, so money is actually most of the money is not coming from the U.S., but it's raised onshore in China. So um, there is certainly um, a, a shift historically, but um, there's also um, new investment, and I think a lot of the, the new money that's coming in—it really was over the past decade—were um, SMEs from the U.S., um, and small and medium-sized businesses that um, saw. Um, initially thought the Chinese market is too complicated but then saw uh, saw an increasing opportunity in 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 high per capita GDP markets like Shanghai moving over and I think a lot of that is is is, is new money um, and I don't if, care if, if you have any additional insights uh, from where you're sitting.
4: yeah I mean it's definitely return, retained earnings most of the companies do uh, reinvest the earnings that they get here um, yeah except for those companies that don't see, uh, don't see a, um, a growth path. I think back to the question earlier about the Made in China 2025, and you know what are the sectors that are really not available to, to to China in terms of growth? And you sort of look at companies in the network security space and tele- telecommunications infrastructure. You know these kinds of companies, they're not going to reinvest, re- retain earnings, right? Those guys are going to repatriate those earnings because there just isn't that isn't the growth opportunity for those types of firms here. Um, and, and to segue over, you know, to answer the previous question about, you know, what are the most important, um, I think those are important companies, they're important strategically for the United States, you know, to, to have those uh, companies be truly global. Um, and and to be global, you have to include the China market. And so we would like to see those sectors open. Um um, especially, you know, cloud computing, you know, some of these other things, uh, yeah. some of these other businesses where, where the U.S. has a, frankly, has an advantage. We, we should
1: win those battles. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's an interesting, I mean, you know, we're seeing very slow opening in the financial services sector, which is going to move the numbers somewhat going forward. So I guess for all of you, any chance we'll see progress in you know, Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, uh, foreign media, um, cloud computing. Any chance we're going to see? You know, Dan talked about green shoots. I didn't hear any green shoots in those areas. But any chance that the Chinese may decide, hey, let's just let's just throw open. We have enough controls in our in our society today. We actually can allow foreign companies in these sectors. Any chance of that? <laughs>
4: Who's, who's going to take that one first?
0: Not in media. Uh, uh,
4: uh, yeah, I'll give you the short answer. I mean, the short answer to prove is no. Um, you're not going to see Twitter or, or Facebook in that, despite like Mark Zuckerberg's best efforts, heroic efforts. No, you're not going to see that anytime soon. You may see, but you threw in cloud computing. And uh, so on the infrastructure side, perhaps. Um, but again, that's probably going to be more. Negotiated, um, you know, on basis of reciprocity, things like that. But on the media side, um, frankly, it's the opposite. Um, you are seeing uh, China, uh, frankly, it's 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 becoming um, more repressive, more authoritarian, uh, deeper control into social media. So, so no, they're heading in the opposite direction. So, I wouldn't I wouldn't anticipate that. You mentioned financial services. Yes, definitely. That's an opportunity. We talked about asset management earlier, but broadly speaking in financial services, you're gonna see more opportunities there, wholly owned securities firms, wholly owned insurance. Those uh, again, COVID COVID notwithstanding, you know, so let's see how quickly uh, the recovery happens and those opportunities present themselves, but financial services is a bright front. Um, You mentioned quickly, uh, We would respectfully disagree. From our perspective, we've been pushing on that for so long, and and we frankly been scratching our heads over it um, because we don't see why China has been so slow at liberalizing their financial services market. In other words, you look at just look at commercial banking. Does anybody think that there's a threat to Chinese banks from coming from the foreign banks coming in and, and and all of a sudden dominating retail banking and corporate banking here in right. china please i mean it's it, the, the, the the big five banks are enormous and and they're actually in a competitive competitively advantageous situation relative to the foreign banks so why there hasn't been faster liberalization in that market we have no idea uh, it, should, it was a long time coming, should have, been, um, should have been more open much earlier for China's own benefit. Um, yeah. And one thing that's kind of interesting is how they backed away or quietly buried this plan to make Shanghai an international financial center by the year 2020. Here we are. Um, that's been a plan on the books for quite a long time. They are nowhere near
1: becoming an international financial center. Dan and Tilo, anything you want to add on that? Because we're we're about out of time.
2: Yeah, I, I think one exception uh, to the to sort of media um, internet um, um, assessment is if there are firms that are able to carve out certain certain uh, parts of their businesses uh, and apply it to the Chinese market. I mean, Facebook has big operations in China on the on the game app developing side, for example, or. Um, no, quite interesting if you look at uh, what TikTok is doing in the US market, right? If, if there is a way for them to uh, try to really localize operations and, and customize it, obviously for US firms, there's too much um, civil society pressure um, uh, to uh, give up um, some of those uh, uh, principles, uh, uh, as was seen with Google back in the days. Um, but if there's a way for them to uh, make make that compromise, then I, I do see uh, that some U.S. firms could take advantage of of, uh, of uh, So, of so
0: many, many uh, U.S. technology companies have failed in China. And so even if Twitter and Facebook uh, were allowed in, they're competing against uh, Chinese companies that are in some ways more innovative and advanced than the American counterparts. They already have WeChat, for instance, which is more functional than what we have in the West. So even if they were allowed in, would the Chinese consumers want it?
1: Yeah, it may be too late. Can I close with my favorite question to Dan and, and Tilo, which is um, what's the number going to
3: be for 2020 of FDI? Tilo had a golden opportunity to take my $100 bet about that um, a couple of months ago. And I think he walked past that $100 bill. But Tilo, why don't you put our official rhodium number on the table?
2: Since uh, this is on the record uh, and it's <laughs> going to be available for the eternity, I'm I'm a little hesitant, but uh, I I think you know we actually we are, we actually saw uh, already uh, uh, one big investment close, uh, Tencent buying a big stake in uh, um, Universal Music uh, in the first quarter. Um, so looking at completed investments, if I would have to take a guess, uh, we'll probably end up uh, uh, in a similar. Uh, on a similar, at a similar level as as last as last year in 2020, so around five billion plus minus, minus. Um, and um, U.S. to China, um, I would say I would say we go, we go down somewhere uh, uh, around uh, 12 13 billion this year. Oh,
1: hmm. uh, go down. that's a COVID driven number. Partly.
2: I would. Say it's always a little hard to um, to track these changes in in, in capital um, expenditure and in plant and equipment, right? So if if, uh, if big U.S. multinationals are are making these adjustments, that's not something that they want to announce publicly. So um, it it always takes time to find these things. But yes, I would think um, quite a few companies will at least put a temporary halt on on uh, on more aggressive expansion, and that will lead to the number being pushed down a bit uh, in a short in a short run, yeah.
1: We've gone past our appointed time, so I know Kerr has to go to his day job. Dan probably has to go get ready for bed. Rebecca has to go to dinner, and Tilo has to go to dinner. But this has been a fabulous, wonderful program I've learned a lot. Thank Hilo and Dan for coming up with all this terrific data. Thank her for his comments. Thank Rebecca for her comments. It was a wonderful evening for those of us in New York. And thank you all for joining us. We'll see you soon, in person, I hope. Thank you, Steve. Good night. Thank you, everybody.
0: For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.